when you ask people, and this is true across cultures, what does happiness mean to you? People often confuse the means to happiness mm-hmm. with the state of happiness. So people often give the answer, happiness to me is money, or happiness to me is love, or happiness to me is eating good food. Those are all things that perhaps put these people in a state of happiness, their means to happiness rather than happiness itself. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired, and please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Rajwa Gunatan to the My Fourth Act podcast. Raj is a professor of business at the University of Texas at Austin. He is interested in exploring the impact that our judgments and decisions have on our happiness and fulfillment. His work has appeared in many, many top journals and mass media outlets, but perhaps more importantly, Raj writes about his views on happiness, creativity, and leadership on a very popular Psychology Today blog with over 2 million page views. Raj has a six-week-long Coursera course on happiness titled A Life of Happiness and Fulfillment, which over 350,000 people have registered in from 196 countries. And this is probably already outdated as I read it. And that has been one of the top 100 massive open online courses of all time. His book, and I love this title, and Raj, every time I mention this title to somebody, people just beam. It's like like this beam of recognition. It is, if you're so smart, why aren't you happy? was released in 14 languages around the world. So all of this to say, Raj has some thoughts and opinions about happiness, and we're going to talk about it. Hi, Raj. (laughs) Hi. Thank you very much, Akim. Really a pleasure to see you. Likewise, just by listening to your slight accent, you're originally from India, your name gives it away. Right. And I'm curious, before we get to what you do now, when you were a young boy growing up in India, and I'm assuming you had parents who had ideas about what you should do in life, or you had ideas what you should do in life, what were you thinking about? I grew up in several different places in India. My father was um, employed at the, turns out, the largest employer in the whole world with about 2 million people employed by this organization called the Indian Railways. Mm -hmm. The country, you know, 2 million people. And so it's a transferable job and you get transferred quite a bit every three years or so. So I grew up all over India and I loved the trains. I loved what I thought my dad was doing for his job. And my dream was to become also like him, you know, a government, specifically an Indian railway government job, which has a lot of security and stability associated with it. And you get to travel around India and you have a lot of maids and peons and, you know, people to take care of you, help. Uh, my mom had, um, I think, bigger ambitions for me, so to speak, because the that job is good. But then she wanted me to, you know, travel the world and earn money and all that. As for me, because of my father, I wanted to do that. But I 
think that even at that young age, say from eight, nine onwards, I remember having this distinct thought when I was about eight years old or nine years old that I just want to be happy. That's what is most important to me. It just struck me at one point. But did you have any idea of how you would get to be happy at that time or was it just the, the end goal? So I just had this moment of clarity when I felt I want to be happy. Um, I didn't necessarily know how to get there, but I was interested in the topic. I, I can't remember now. It's such a long time back and I was just a kid, right? I mean, so, but I remember this moment of clarity when I said, you know, what I want to be is happy. Now, fast forward, you studied marketing. I believe you went to NYU, right? Correct. And I also went to NYU. So it's funny. Oh, okay. it's, wow. a, it's a very vivid place for me, NYU and oh. downtown Manhattan. And I lived in the East Village and all of that. But as you just talked about happiness, you mentioned marketing and happiness are not automatically connected <laughs> in my mind. So would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Certainly the field of marketing, as in the business side of marketing, for that matter, business side of business, right? I mean, not just marketing, finance and accounting and information systems. People don't normally associate those topics with happiness. A business in general is considered to be about money and making money. It's the bottom line. And if anything, it's associated more with being stressed out. But certainly on the consumer side, you can think that marketing is about marketing happiness. You know, eventually everyone's interested in some kind of a positive emotional outcome out of using a product or a service. And so from that standpoint, I guess you could say that marketers at some level market happiness, but business school isn't associated with it. Marketing departments aren't associated with it. And so when I started having this, I guess, kind of almost like an existential question that came up in my mind after tenure, after I got tenure, that, hey, at the end of the day, if Everything that we do in a business school, the knowledge that we impart to the students isn't necessarily leading them to lead a happier, more fulfilling life. And by extension, leading other people that these people are associated with, you know, the MBA students, families, et cetera, the consumers to be a happy, to lead a happier life, then something missing in this picture, you know, so we're imparting them knowledge, but the knowledge isn't necessarily translating to this end goal, which I assume to be the goal that everybody or most people want. So that was a little bit troubling for me that that was the case. And so I thought happiness should be taught in the business, or at least discussed. And so that's when I started putting the course together. Yeah, because I know you write about all this. Like, I'm going to ask some questions that with anybody else, I would feel stupid asking these questions. But with you, <laughs> I know I can. But because I also think our listeners could be thinking about this and and I'm originally from Germany, you know, so I'm not from the United States. We both live here. And I immediately think in, in different cultures, people may have a very different understanding of what happiness actually is. Mm-hmm. So if you had to give us a your working understanding of happiness, since you teach courses on that, what would that be? That's a good question. So the first thing that I want to say here is that when you ask people, and this is true across cultures, what does happiness mean to you? People often confuse the means to happiness mm-hmm. with the state of happiness. So people often give the answer, happiness to me is money, or happiness to me is love, or happiness to me is eating good food. Those are all things that perhaps put these people in a state of happiness. They're means to happiness rather than happiness itself. And I think that if you remove that confusion, so part of the you know, differences across cultures is perhaps the confusion that in some cultures, 
maybe money or, you know, success is seen as contributing more to happiness than say relationships or hobbies and things like that. When you get to the psychological state of happiness itself, I think there is less confusion. I don't think anybody in this world would disagree with the statement I'm about to make, which is that happiness by and large is a positive emotional state that people desire to experience. Okay. I don't think that Anybody would disagree. Maybe there'll be some people who might, but by and large, people wouldn't disagree. If you kind of like then make it a little more specific from that, I do think that there are idiosyncratic differences among people. There is research on it. So older people around the world in general prefer a positive psychological state of tranquility and serenity and calmness compared Mm -hmm. to younger people. Younger people seek more excitement, more stimulation-oriented positive states as opposed to more relaxing oriented positive states. Eastern cultures tend to seek more tranquil, serene, calm, emotional states as opposed mm-hmm. to Western cultures, which seek more uh, like joy and exuberance and things like that. I do think that there is some difference around the world. Uh, if you ask me specifically how I define happiness, I don't think that I would define it differently from a lot of my esteemed colleagues in positive psychology would, which is that you can think of it as a kind of a, like a, almost like a catch-all or umbrella term that captures a lot of different kinds of positive experiences and emotional states, including love and joy and hope and interest and awe and gratitude and, you know, laughter, pride, and so on and so forth. I think that you could also accommodate some not so necessarily unambiguously positive experiences in this umbrella, such as the satisfaction that you get from working out at the gym, right? It's a little bit of a soreness, maybe, that you even feel by, by itself, it could be even a little bit painful. But in the context of seen from the lens of where the pain is coming from, which is that I worked out and I pushed myself. And that's why feeling the soreness, it could actually be a positive thing. Likewise, seeing a horror movie, you know, in the moment you might be scared, but you might also be enjoying that moment or a roller coaster ride and so on and so forth. And so with human beings, it gets a little bit complex, I would say. But in general, that's how I would define happiness. An umbrella term that captures one way to think about happiness, Akim, is like, and I saw this as a definition in, you know, The Geography of Bliss, which is a great book by a guy called Eric Weiner. He says that somebody that he interviewed somewhere, I think in Switzerland, said that happiness to me is not wanting to be somewhere else, yeah. doing something else. Mm, beautiful. So right now, you're here, you're angry, maybe you're anxious, whatever it is, but you'd rather not be somewhere else doing something else. There you go. And mostly we tend to want to be in that state or like we tend to think that I'd rather not be somewhere else doing something else when we are feeling these positive emotional states, but it can also happen for other states. And the state of presence could be described as happiness. You already used the word research a little while ago, and I know you've conducted research and and I'm a little bit familiar with the research in the field. And not all the research necessarily agrees on and how we find more happiness. But what I'm interested in, if you think about your research and that and others, what has been most surprising to you about discoveries around happiness, what makes us happy, maybe things you didn't expect, but research points here or there? One of the things that I did not expect was how functional happiness is. That is that I don't think it's at all surprising that around the world, most people seek happiness, perhaps even think it is one of the most important goals, if not the most important goal. It's almost axiomatic, you know, people want to be happy and we ask them, why do you want to be happy? They're like, you know, I don't know. I just want to be happy. You know, it's like asking 
why do you want to eat something tasty? You yeah. know, yeah, want it because it tastes good. <laughs> um, so the thing that I think I didn't realize when I started teaching this course is how functional happy would be. That is that the kind of positive consequences and the benefits that come as a result of being in a state of happiness or being in a positive state. So happier people are healthier, happier people are more collegial, happier people are more creative or objective and so on and so forth. And so therefore happier people earn more money, for example. So that was something of a bit of a surprise, which when I started out teaching the course, I just wanted to talk about happiness and discuss happiness because it seemed like an important goal, but I didn't really have in my mind a business case for teaching happiness. But once I discovered all these functional benefits of happiness, it made a huge business case. In fact, I think that yeah. one of the most important thing that things that I think need to be studied in a business context and organizations need to prioritize it because happier people are employees are more successful and productive and profitable. That was a big surprise. Well, since you used the word functional, if you were to give our listeners some guidance, what are some behaviors of inclinations that we may have that actually get in the way where we get in the way of our own happiness, like stuff that just, you know, doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that in general, there is a tendency to overemphasize extrinsic determinants of happiness. Mm -hmm. So by extrinsic, I mean things like rewards that you get for doing something that are monetary in nature, not just purely emotional. So, you know, getting a good salary or becoming more famous or achieving status, things like that. Not that they don't increase happiness, they do increase happiness, but more in the short term, rather than being a sustainable source of happiness. And people often err on the side of overweighting them. And therefore, for example, given two jobs, both of which pay sufficient amount of money, but one of them is far more close to one's intrinsic motivations and intrinsic interests and values. And the other one takes them away from these things and they don't really like the day-to-day -day things that they'd be doing in that job, but it pays a lot more money. People haven't, you know, there's been some evidence showing that people have a tendency to kind of like prefer the second job, even though happiness-wise, the first job would be better, right? So I call this the fundamental happiness paradox. It's a paradox to me, at least, and my collaborators, because people say that happiness is the most important thing. And yet we often see people sacrifice happiness for the sake of other things that they say are less important to them, like money or like fame and, and things like that. And so that's um, one of the ways in which we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot, right? Sometimes it's the ego that comes in the way, you know, there's a saying in relationships, right? You can either be happy or you can be right. And yeah. people often kind of emphasize being right more than being happy, things like right. that. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about my own life. And you already talked about in general terms about maybe different things and different ages provide happiness. And, and my sense is that as I was younger, I'll, I got maybe not happiness, but satisfaction out of proving things to myself. Like I can do this. <laughs> I accomplished it. And, and as I became more accomplished, that became less and less important. I mean, that did not make me happy. So saying no to things, mm. creating space for more happiness became a lot more important and easier. This is just as I'm listening to you. Can you help me make sense of that? Or how oh, does yeah. that relate to what you know about happiness? Right. So 
when you think about achieving things, right, getting a degree or accomplishing this really tough business challenge that has been thrown at you and so on and so forth, there tends to be a certain kind of an egotistical element to achieving those things that make you feel if you were to pick a specific emotion, it would be hubristic pride that I did it, you know, I'm better than other people. At the very least, I'm better than I was before, that kind of a sense of pride. There is another reason why we see competence and mastery over things. And, you know, and that has to do with when you're very good at doing something, let's say branding, right? Then you get into these so-called flow states where you completely lose track of time. And, you know, and these flow states and the intensity of these flow states and the quality of these flow states are better when you're at higher levels of skill and you're challenged to a higher level as well, right? Flow states happen when you're challenged, not too much, not too little, just the right amount. And these high flow states, as I call them, are really, really important in life. And if you often can get into high flow states where you're challenged and you're stretched, you lose yourself in the activity, you're absorbed, and you come out of it kind of physically, mentally exhausted, but very satisfied. I mean, that's a huge determinant of happiness, right? So when you think about competence and achieving things and rising up to challenges, there are these two different sources of satisfaction. One is more hubristic pride that comes usually from the outcome being a good one. And the other is these flow states that comes from the process rather than from the outcome. And I think that one way in which to interpret what you're saying is that when you look back to your earlier days, I think that there was a greater emphasis on the first kind of happiness, you know, more pride and that's driven by society and what other people think of you more so than your own internal sense of enjoyment of the activity and intrinsic motivation to do those activities. And it's an interesting thing that as people grow older, I think especially around our age, right, like past 50, people start to recognize that, hey, you know, there's no end to kind of being in the rat race of trying to prove to other people that I'm better than them or as better than others before. I, here's something I've done. I've done this and so on. At some point, you realize that that doesn't really give you sustained levels of satisfaction and happiness. And so you branch away from that into focusing more on what you want to do. And so earlier, while you might have taken up challenges or things like that, said yes to people and stretched yourself really thin and not got enough sleep and not prioritized intrinsically motivating things, uh, there comes a point in which, and this happens not to everybody, by the way, you know, to people who are, I think, introspective and self-aware and have kind of looked at some major themes that emerge from past experiences. So in other words, somewhat wise people, and I don't mean it in a you know, wise guy sense, but truly, you know, yeah. So those are the people who arrive at that milestone and conclusion that, look, you know, I'm not going to, I have limited time, you know, I'm not going to pursue all these things just because it makes somebody else happy or because, you know, I get praised or I get a little more money here and things. I'm going to focus on things that I really want to do. And so if I don't want to do something, I'm going to be clear about it. I'm just going to de-obligate myself. You know, I think it's a huge thing to de-obligate yourself. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act mastermind groups where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. 
A book that greatly influenced me 25 years ago was Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience by thinking of the flow master, Mihaly Chikant Mihaly, who passed recently. And uh, and you you described it so eloquently, just, just as you talked about flow doesn't just happen when we lie on the beach and do nothing. Flow happens in deep engagement and being yep. challenged in a helpful way. In your book, um, and I think this is what I would like to talk to talk about talk for our listeners is you you describe the habits that you believe foster more happiness and you're very specific in some of them and uh, I want to invite you to talk about them a little bit like what habits mm-hmm. uh, are more likely to foster happiness in our lives. Mm. Yes. So let me talk about. At least three here, and then if okay. you're interested, I can talk yeah. about more. I think these three are things that are more tangible, and people, most people, can relate to them. One is we already talked about it a little bit, right? This idea of flow, right? So, in general, pursuing something that gets you into these flow states, and these tend to be things that you're intrinsically motivated by. You do them anyway, even if you did not get paid money for them. But of course, if you get paid money for it, all the better. So, I'm talking about things that come naturally to you that you've always enjoyed. And a lot of us have these so-called hobbies, right? Like dancing and, you know, playing music or playing a sport, et cetera, in which we get flow states. But really, I mean, ideally you should be finding flow at work because, you know, we spend about 80,000 to 100,000 hours in our lifetime. Typically, typical person does, which is about, you know, twice the amount of time that we spend with our own families, it turns out, uh, if you take out sleep time. Huge amount of time. And if you're not experiencing flow on a reasonably regular basis at work, it would be a big shame. That's one habit. So try and have more flow in your life. And if you don't find it at work, at least find it outside of work through your hobbies. The second very important determinant is being kind and compassionate to other people. And doesn't have to cost a lot of money. doesn't have to take a lot of effort. Just saying good things to people, not being self-centered etc. is huge. And it's kind of like a little bit one of those somewhat counterintuitive determinants of happiness, because you would think that if I'm helping other people, or if I'm being kind to other people, why should I feel happy? You know, they should feel happy. Why should I feel happy? The Dalai Lama said that if you want to make others happy, be compassionate. If you want to make yourself happy, be compassionate. It's the same answer. And the reason, one of the big reasons for it is that your narrative about who you are, it turns out, is hugely important for your happiness. And when you're Helping other people out, that is your basic nature. You're a kind and compassionate person. It has a dual effect that boosts your happiness. And one of those is that the narrative that you have about yourself is that I'm overflowing with things that I can give other people. You know, I'm abundant. My life is abundant. And that's a huge um, positive self-narrative that helps other people out. And the other thing that happens as a result um, of that self-narrative is that when you help other people out, they want to help you back in return. That's right. Right. And so you set yourself up in these like positive, virtuous, upward spiraling uh, relationships, right? Which makes it much better for you. So, you know, if you think through it, then, you know, helping other people out is actually one of the most powerful ways of being happy. In fact, when you're feeling unhappy, as counterintuitive as it might sound, going and helping other people out will probably pull you out of that funk a lot more. 
Raj, I love that phrase you just use, upward spiraling relationships. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. just fantastic. I want to bring it to you. And I adored the, the quote you gave us from the geography of bliss, which if I'm going to paraphrase it, is basically just, I don't want to be anywhere else rather than where I am. If you had to give us a snapshot of how you in your own life experience everyday happiness in big or small ways, like what does that look like for you? Yeah. I know you teach it. I know you write about it. But mm -hmm. what does it look like for you, Raj? It's kind of interesting, right? So you can seek experiences that are going to evoke this positive emotional state in you, be it joy, be it love, be it hope, gratitude, et cetera. Really at a chemical level, they are triggering release of dopamine and serotonin and all that. Yeah. And that's a very standard way to try and become happier. So you eat a good meal or, you know, chat with friends. But the other thing that you can do, and, you know, this actually kind of highlights why this definition is such a potentially powerful one, which is I'd rather not be somewhere else doing something else, right? Is that you can kind of become present even if the present is less than satisfactory. So you might be at a restaurant and chatting with somebody that is not going very well, it's not very pleasant. But if you become present, even though it's not pleasant, yeah. right? You, you train your mind to become present, then it turns out that it boosts your happiness. And so that's a much more powerful approach to being happier because chasing things and putting in place things that evoke positive states, yeah, you know, that's good, but often it's not under your control because you need the cooperation of the external world for you to be able to achieve those things that give you that sense of pleasantness. For example, you go on vacation and it starts raining, right? I mean, it's not in your control. But on the other hand, if you can become present, more or less in any situation at any point, and let's take out the extreme cases where you know, you're being tortured or whatever, but otherwise you can be present, then it turns out that you've kind of like turned the tables on happiness in a sense, right? You've decided that you're going to be happy no matter what. I chuckle as we're having this conversation because as we started, you know, you have had some physical pain all day, you yep. know, you so let me know, like, we're going to have this conversation, but I've been physically uncomfortable. And, and this is why uh, I've been lifting my arm up because it's like a pinched nerve in the back of my upper yeah. back. Yeah. So if we use your present state as an example, you know, where you have all sorts of reasons to actually be distracted and not be present, you know, and we all have had experienced physical pains and physical discomfort. So how do you get present in the middle of physical discomfort and pain? Obviously, when the pain is very extreme, it's difficult to do it, right? Yeah. But the idea is to observe the pain on a moment-to-moment -moment basis without any additional baggage of the mind, you know, commentary about the pain and the consequences. Is the pain going to last? You know, what does it mean for my health? All those things, you know, those are all valid questions to ask and probably productive questions to ask in order to kind of diagnose the cause of the pain and treat it, etc. But if you want to be present with the pain, it really means observing the pain. And what does it mean? You know, the pain is a word, right? But it's referring to an experience. And so being present means kind of like essentially having that experience rather than focusing on the word pain. So when you do that, it's a cliche, right? But you know, you experience the pain, but there's no suffering or there's very little suffering that accompanies the pain. The suffering comes from the mental chatter, so to speak, right? That typically accompanies especially negative experiences like pain as opposed to positive ones. And so when you get rid of the mental chatter or minimize it, then it's pain 
sure, but there's no suffering. And it turns out that that is much more pleasant than plain pain plus suffering. And in fact, if you dial up the curiosity knob, there's a really interesting book called Curious by Todd Cashdan, where he talks about how, you know, in any situation, you can think about two dimensions. One is like how curious you are, intellectually yeah. curious, for example, about that, and you can dial it up or down. And the other is how it makes you feel, you know, positive or negative, but you can dial up that, you know, focus on the feelings. And so being present is kind of like dialing up the curiosity knob a lot. Okay. And when you do that, then really what we talk about as pain, categorized as pain is an experience, really. I mean, it's ultimately an experience, just as pleasure or positive experiences are experiences. And if you take out the value judgment or the vertical dimension, right, this is bad, that is good and focus on the horizontal dimension of how is this different from another mm -hmm. experience. That is what I mean by turning up the curiosity knob. Then you're present. And when you're able to do it, and then there's a sense of calmness at the very least that comes in terms of the, uh, the state that you're experiencing. If not, in fact, a sense of, you know, there's another book that I want to refer to here called Search Inside Yourself by Chait mm -hmm. Mengdan. And he talks about this concept of non-energetic joy. So basically, the idea is that even without putting any effort into something, no energy is gone into it, you feel joyful. You know, so it's just like you recognize your inner, inner nature at some level as being really by default being one of joyfulness or happiness or positive, whatever you want to call it. And so even in pain, you can actually be somewhat joyful, even though it sounds like contradictory at some level. But state of presence can give you a glimpse into how that can be done. So since you you just spoke a lot about curiosity and what I'm thinking about, and the listeners of the podcast tend to be people who have been very successful in life. They're accomplished. They're not yearning for more extrinsic validation, but they have a sense that might be more to explore. When I think about you, you're celebrated, you're successful. My hunch is, and I could be really wrong, is that you Frequently being asked to do things where you might go, oh, I've done this already. Like, this is not new anymore. I maybe don't want to do this. I want to do something else. Um, so your curiosity about life, what you want to investigate and explore at this stage in your life, accomplished. You don't have anything to prove to anybody, really. What tickles your fancy or what uh, what comes up for you around that? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually don't feel the sense of blaziness mm. about life uh, in the job that I have. You know, I feel very lucky to be in a teaching and research profession where I can pick my projects and pick my classes. Of course, I've been teaching happiness for a very, very long time. Yeah. But as any student of any discipline will know, you know, you're never really a master. I mean, you're all, or rather, I should say that you're always, there's always scope for learning, right? And that can keep you on your toes. And so every interview, every podcast is different. And some of the podcasts, and I'm really enjoying this one, I enjoy a little bit more just because I think that the person asking me the questions is coming from a place that seems compatible with my level of, don't necessarily want to use a vertical dimension here to describe it, but I want to use the word depth, okay, that comes to me right now, that it's coming at a, from a place of deeper understanding of things. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a vertical dimension in the sense of being evaluative and deep is better than shallow, but it's just a matter of life's experiences. And I think that if you've been through more ups and downs, then you end up 
arriving at a place that's deeper. And I think I get that sense in this interview. And so in the interviews that don't go that way and it's a little more shallow, I have to admit that it does get a little bit more boring or I'm not as into it or the stimulus, namely the interview and the interviewer, aren't pulling me into a place of presence. And so I have to impose presence on that interview, for example. Um, And the way to do it would be to look at the question and look at it from the perspective of um, why that person is coming, um, asking me this question, um, and then see if I can make it deeper, so to speak, right? Because that's what is going to be stimulation, stimulating yeah. for me. And so I kind of take that question and see if I can connect it to a deeper point and see if I can kind of traverse that trajectory from what I think of as a more shallow question. And maybe an example here will help about a shallow question, but basically that kind of a thing. Well, you, you've done such a wonderful job of, for me anyway, adding layers and layers of understanding of what happiness is or can be and in a way redefining it and I, I want to conclude with this question because we both know we'll have a lot of friends and want to call it the World Happiness Movement, you know, mm-hmm. or organizations that celebrate happiness. Yeah. And one thing that has always surprised me when I have publicly associated myself with folks who celebrate happiness, people often say to me, yeah, but you can't be happy all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's almost the, the but or something it's more important to be content and not happy and, and, and all those arguments against happiness yeah. um, against points I actually haven't made, but I know the word happiness tends to trigger the possibility of it tends to trigger something deep in people. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts around that? Uh, that's a great question again. And uh, honestly, I don't have any objection to somebody saying that, you know, I prioritize contentment more, I prioritize meaningfulness more or fulfillment more. Yeah. You know, these are all labels that are in the ballpark of happiness, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. I do think that I have a little more of a reaction or more things to say when somebody says that you can't be happy all the time. I think that that becomes a bit more of a definitional issue of what you mean by happiness. And I think that it's certainly true that you can't have pleasure all the time. You can't like, you know, always be eating something tasty. You can't always be feeling a sense of physically kind of, you know, uh, feeling the sense of positivity. Like when you take a shower, the first, when if you're cold and you, you know, switch the shower on, it's warm and first 10 seconds, maybe a minute, maybe even two minutes feel really pleasurable, but it's going to go away after a while, right? So pleasure doesn't last a long time, but certainly this definition that we're coming back to now, which is, not being anywhere else, doing something else. That seems like it could be achieved all the time. And if that is happiness to you, then it seems like it can be sustained. And one question I pose to people who ask me this question, I'd be curious to see if somebody asks you this question, if you were to pose this question back to them, I'd be curious to see what your experience is. I've always found it like a very powerful question to ask these people who say you can't be happy all the time. I ask them, do you know somebody who's depressed more or less all the time? And invariably, particularly in the United States, which is actually a sad thing as a side note, that everybody seems to know somebody like that. Yeah. Right? Then I ask them, if somebody can be that, then why can't the opposite of that be true? Yeah. Right? And then they think about it and say, oh, yeah. You know, the assumption underlying this idea that you can't be happy all the time often is that you need darkness, you need sadness, 
and it's a relative comparison to that state that makes you happy, okay? And so a corollary of that is that you can't be sad all the time either because in order for you to feel sad, you need the opposite of that to contrast it. But then if you show them that there are people in your own life that you know who are depressed all the time, so it doesn't seem like you need that contrast for these people at least, then why can't the opposite of that be true, right? So I don't know. So those are some of the thoughts I had. So let, let's just end with that question. Why can't it be true? I love that. <laughs> uh, there are many places to find you. And, and I'm sure that people who are listening to us going, I want to learn more about where, where I can find Raj and his work. So where, where would you like to direct them? Yeah, so I have a website that's titled happysmarts.com, happysmarts.com. It's kind of like a one-stop shop of the things that I do. There are some good resources there. There's a link to my Coursera course, my edX course, and some articles. You mentioned the Psychology Today blog. You know, those articles are there too. There's some good exercises that people can do. So that is where I would lead them to, happysmarts.com. Thank you for this conversation. And uh, I, I'm going to release this episode around World Happiness Day. Wonderful. And I believe you're going to be in Miami for in person. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, that's true. That is true. So World Happiness Day is the 20th of March. I'm going to be yeah. there on the 23rd, I believe, is when I land. I expect to see you in person when you're in Miami. So I look forward to that. Yeah, me too. Okay, take care. This is awesome. Bye-bye, Raj. Bye. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.